songs of deliverance and I will stand every captive free and you will be with me and you will be with me for you are
morning, Calvary Chapel Mountain View. So glad to see everybody here. Uh, we are going to worship the Lord. But right before we do, we're going to pray and uh, seek him out. So let's do that. Lord, we just uh, are so thankful for today, Lord. Thankful that we can worship you together. Praying, Lord, for your Holy Spirit just to minister to us, Lord. Just as um, I was just sharing with another sister, Lord. Um, praying, Lord, for the Holy Spirit just to... Um, be in this place, Lord, as we're worshiping you and as we're uh, drawn near to you and are in your presence, Lord, that um, we just cast down uh, the enemy who would seek to distract us, who would seek to um, halt what you're trying to do in this church and in, in our lives, Lord, as believers, Lord, that um, he, he wants to take us down. And Lord, we pray uh, in your name, um, against the wiles of the enemy, Lord, praying for just uh, your supernatural power, Lord, to just empower us, enable us to uh, be able to just walk in the spirit continually, Lord. So we just pray for this in your name. Amen. All right, let's worship. The splendor of the key.
Holy, holy, holy. 
so this summer I spent actually my whole summer doing outreach and I just have a few words here from Philippians that kind of stood out to me so Philippians 3 through 5 it says don't be selfish don't try to impress others be humble thinking of others as better than yourselves don't look out only for your own interests but take an interest in others too you must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Thank you.
Father God, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that we have eternity to look forward to, God. That we can sing forever and ever, holy is the Lord. For Lord Jesus, you are holy. You are worthy of all honor and glory and praise. And we get to worship you, God. Why wait till we're in heaven? But Lord Jesus, may we have heaven's mission on our hearts, Lord God, that we are continually worshiping you with our lives, with our words, with our thoughts, with our actions, with our attitudes. Lord Jesus, may the very air that we breathe would be as honor and glory unto you, Lord Jesus. Be magnified, be glorified in our lives, Lord Jesus. We worship you, God. We sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We thank you that you're coming again, Lord Jesus. You have not forsaken us, God, but we have hope of eternity. Lord Jesus, if we're faint of heart, place joy and hope within our hearts, Lord Jesus. Knowing that we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Holy Spirit, just pour out a refreshing on this people right now. If we're tired, if we're weary, if we're broken, if we're hurting, God, 
May we find comfort and peace in you, Lord Jesus. You are the Prince of Peace. So, Lord, we love you. We praise you and we thank you for this time. Lord, may we continue worshiping you, Lord God, in fellowship and reading of your word, Lord Jesus. We love you, God, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys go ahead and have a seat. That was amazing. Um, let's give it up for our worship team. Everybody, please, please. Praise God. It is so easy um, to forget who our God is, that he spoke and this whole world came into existence. And that this is the same God who humbled himself, like, like Caleb talked about in Philippians. It says he's hum he humbled himself. And he gave up all that and he came down to represent us before God. And I think we can forget that that is the God who didn't need someone to create him, that he just was, and that he spoke this whole world into existence. Everything we see, everything we think, everything we do, it's in him. And, man, that was just amazing. I just, I think about Isaiah, and he's like, he gets caught up in that vision. He's like, wow, I'm a man of unclean lips. We should have that same attitude. Like, God, we, we're not even, we don't even deserve to praise him, yet he allows us to because he loves us. So that was just such, a, such an amazing time of worship. Thank you guys again. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, so what's going on around here? Um, Tuesdays, men's and women's, we're going through the, um, the book on the minor prophets, and so that's been amazing. Um, that's been a wonderful time, so I encourage you guys, if you guys don't have the book, you can still get it, still jump in, um, going through the Minor Prophets. Um, so that's Tuesday, and I believe a Wednesday morning group. Um, and then there's the regroup midweek that's happening here in the Fellowship Hall, um, where Pastor Jeff is teaching, um, along with the midweek dis sermon discussion with Pastor, or not Pastor, but with Jeff Nelson, so we'll have him come up and talk a little bit about that afterwards. Um, and then next Sunday, October 23rd, is going to be the Married Couples Ministership. That'll be at the church office. So please come. We'd love to have you. Pastor Chris does an amazing job. and There he is. He's over there. He does an amazing job. And he's talked about multiple things like appreciation. And it's, it's, it's great. Please come. It's, it's, it's an amazing time. Um, and then, yeah, if you'd like to serve here, um, feel free to talk with many of the people, but should be an information table in the back that you guys could go to and um, uh, get information about that. Um, but yeah, other than that, let's pray for today's service. And, um, God, we just we thank you for this time, Father, that we get to, that you allow us to praise you, God, that you allow us to worship you. That God, there's six angels in heaven right now just proclaiming your holiness. God, that you are so different than the rest of us. God, you are holy, holy, holy. And so, God, we humble our hearts before you, recognizing that we are a people of unclean lips. But, Father, you, you came down. You met us where we were at. And in your love, you demonstrated that by coming down to this earth and dying for us. 
And that's what it's about, God. We just want to give back what's already yours. We want to give ourselves back because you made us in your image, God, and we were made to worship you. So, Father, I thank you for this time that we get to come together as a body, that we get to worship you corporately. Um, and, Father, we just pray for Pastor Bill as he comes up here and he teaches your word. Um, we pray that you would increase, that he would decrease, Father, and that your word and your spirit would do its work in our hearts and our lives, Father. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. All glory to you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, I probably shouldn't have prayed and probably should have let Jeff. Where's Jeff at? Yeah, sorry. My bad. My bad. That's on me. Good morning, all. How are you all doing? I am not Pastor Jeff. There is a Pastor Jeff. That's why Don Jay started to mention about Pastor Jeff. Anyways, um, I'm a longtime member at the church, and on Wednesday nights, we've had a uh, sermon discussion group that actually has blessed Diane and I since we started attending the church years ago. It's a Wednesday night group. We meet from 7 till 8.30, generally, and um, we'll be meeting in the church office, in the upstairs in the church office, and if you sign up, just go through and check with Bill, and... Um, you can get on the list so we can add you and each week Wednesdays mornings generally I'll send out the sermon outline and the outline is from Bill and um, any references to scripture I'll include in it but I don't really generally in, uh, include any of my notes if I do I'll just put note because I really hope you're taking your own notes and it's a chance for us to share and I found that um, over the years it's been a real blessing to um, those of us that are believers, but also hopefully there are some that are uh, not yet believers in the Lord, and we hope you come because you're more than welcome. And as I said, it's been a blessing. We have um, been meeting at our house for the last um, few months, and just a change in life, we have a daughter who's expecting a baby, and we have a dog that's demanding full-time attention. And so rather than have the conflict with the dog demanding the attention, we decided to move upstairs at the church office. So um, let's see. One more thing I was going to say is that um, we understand that Wednesday nights after work can be a busy time. And sometimes people can't feel that, you know, oh, gee, I can't make it all the time. If you can't, don't worry about it. We want you there when you can come. It's always on this week's discussion, and so you can even watch the sermon if you happen to miss it or get my notes and just come. Even if you don't feel prepared, we'd love to have you. And um, we will sh have the door locked a little after 7, but I am with the notes when I send it out. We do a Zoom link, so if you can't be in person, uh, you can attend by Zoom. And my phone number will also be on that email. So if you text me, then if you're locked out, we'll come down and get you. Okay? So without any longer uh, note here, I'll turn it over to Bill. Pardon? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Do me a favor. Bill's going to wait for 10 minutes here while you greet someone around you, or maybe a little less than that. But turn around, find someone, especially you don't know, and welcome them. Sorry, Bill, I didn't hear what you were saying. <laughs> All right. Okay, kids, you guys are dismissed. Uh, elementary kids and uh, youth group, you guys are out this morning. I think it's Don Jay's week this week. So he already took 15 minutes of my time, and now he can go ahead and have you guys. 
I just love the Lord is overflowing this morning. So. so I went so far over last time that I have no opening comments this time, except that it's so good to see you all and you're a blessing to me. And turn to Mark chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, we will get you one. And uh, you can keep that Bible if you need a Bible. So just raise your hand and one of the guys would bring you a Bible. If not, so one Bible down here in the front. Um, if not, you can use a Bible on your phone. I wouldn't recommend the Bibles in the, in the pews there if they're still there unless you um, read Mandarin. So that, those would be good for you in that case, but if not, so let's pray and just ask that the Lord would really bless uh, his time as we continue uh, in his word this morning. So Father, we thank you so much for today. And we thank you, Lord, for um, the life that we share as a body of Christ here in this local fellowship. Lord, we thank you for your spirit that's here present with us as we worship you and as we gather together. Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord, and the privilege that we have of studying it, Lord, and even more so, um, just the great blessing that your spirit promises that he will be the one that teaches us and instructs us in these things. And so that's what we pray for today, Lord. We pray for the ministry of your spirit as we go to your word, pray that you'd bless this time, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 1. Continuing on, we're going to look at uh, kind of the middle section of the chapter, verses 12 through 20. Because as we start out in, in verse 21, we get all kinds of new exciting things going on. So 20 is a good place for us to kind of uh, break off this morning. But what a great start I thought we had in Mark's account uh, last week of the life of Jesus, it's this kind of a fast-moving account, we said, just giving us this picture of God on the move, right? As Jesus comes and really begins his ministry as the servant of God, right? The servant of God, God himself who came to minister and ultimately to give his life so that we could be reconciled back to him. And as we looked together last week, just at those first 11 verses, we talked about the things that moved the ministry of Jesus. First of all, the person and the mission of Jesus, just simply who he was, right? Why it was that he came. We talked about the prophetic promises about the coming of Jesus and how we saw so many of those fulfilled in that ministry of preparation there, the forerunner. John the Baptist. We talked about that deep spiritual hunger that there was at that time for the arrival of Jesus, right? 400 years of this dead silence from heaven and that it had developed this really deep hunger spiritually within the people that they were desperate to hear from the Lord. And they, they were just coming out, remember, in droves to John there in the wilderness as he was baptizing and to, to be baptized by him. We saw Jesus, of course, who also came out to be baptized by John. And this was the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus, such a significant event there in those first few verses as the Holy Spirit comes down upon Jesus really to, to baptize and to empower him for everything then that we're going to see him do in his earthly ministry. And then we saw, remember, those supernatural signs that accompanied the baptism of Jesus. It was the blessing of heaven upon the ministry of Jesus, the, the skies opening up suddenly and the spirit descending down visibly. And we, we heard the voice of the Father 
audibly, speaking there from heaven. And it was all of the members of the triune God, right? All three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all in full endorsement of everything that Jesus is about to say and everything that Jesus is about to do in his ministry here on earth, he would do with the full blessing of heaven. And so those first 11 verses were a wonderful sort of a, a prelude, right, or an introduction really to the ministry that Jesus would have here. And now as we continue in chapter one, we're going to see again kind of this fast moving description by Mark of what were the very early days of that ministry. And of course, as we look at those early days of Jesus' ministry, I think there are some great insights, some great application as we consider our own ministries for Jesus, right? Our individual ministries for Jesus. Remember, it's part of that great commission of sharing the gospel, right? It's part of that ministry of reconciliation that Paul says to the, to the Corinthians that we all share in, right? That we're pleading with people to be reconciled back to God. And so we're going to see a lot of, I think, what it is that we can expect as we step out in the calling specifically that the Lord has on each one of our lives uniquely, right? Different things within the ministry, what those look like, how the Lord works in us first so that he can then, what, work through us so that we can get that gospel out to the world around us. So remember, here's Jesus, right? As we pick up, he's just experienced this baptism, all of these wonderful supernatural signs from heaven. It's what we would certainly call one of those mountaintop moments, right? Kind of those mountaintop experiences that we all have in our lives as Christians. And then notice what Mark tells us next in verse 12 of chapter one. He says that immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness and he was there in the wilderness 40 days tempted by Satan and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. So right from the mountaintop, spiritually speaking, to the wilderness of spiritual testing. Now, we up here in Northern California, when we read the word wilderness, we think about a forest. But in the Bible, that word wilderness is a code word for desert wasteland. Right now, remember, John was out there baptizing in what Mark already called the wilderness, right? The Judean wilderness, specifically that part of the Jordan River Valley where the Jordan River would have emptied into the Dead Sea. But the wilderness that we're talking about here, that would have made where John was kind of look like Club Med, okay? If you go to Israel today and you go along that western shore of the Dead Sea, there's a series of these hills that you see. That's the wilderness that we're talking about here. It would be kind of northwest of the Dead Sea, immediately west of Jericho, and it is one of the most desolate kind of places that you will ever see. It's unbelievable. Physically, it's just dirt and hills and dirt and scorpions, and did I mention dirt and snakes, and then apparently other sorts of wild beasts that Mark mentions here. And also, traditionally, this was seen by the Jews spiritually as kind of a haunt 
right? Or the, the home of evil powers, evil spirits out there in this rocky sort of God-forsaken wilderness. And so this is the place where Jesus is, right? This is the place where he is for what we all know as the temptation of Christ, right? It's recorded for us in more detail in both Luke 4 and as well in Matthew 4. This is the place where Jesus is going to have this 40-day head-on confrontation with the enemy of the human race, the enemy of God himself, it's Satan himself, right? Now, both Matthew and Luke describe for us some of the specific temptations in more detail, and Mark doesn't include any of that, but Mark does include one specific detail that the others don't. And I think it's not only a specific detail, but it's a very significant detail. Look again in verse 12. It says that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. So understand here, the Holy Spirit, who we said has just come upon Jesus to fully equip and completely direct his earthly ministry, directs him first right straight out into the wilderness and right straight in to this time of terrible temptation and incredible testing. This was the very first thing that the Spirit did. Right? What's the first word there in verse 12? Look down, right? It's Mark's favorite word. It's the word immediately. And we just get this sense like no sooner had Jesus just been baptized there that he climbs up out of the water of the Jordan River and he's driven, right? That's a strong word, right? He's driven into the wilderness. Literally, that word there, driven or drove, it's the word cast. And it's the very same word we're going to see Mark use 11 other times to describe the casting out of a demon. Right? That's the force with which. I think the New American Standard uses the word he was impelled. Right? Now, it's not at all the sense that Jesus was in any way unwilling or that he, was un, uh, that he was afraid to face Satan. But using this word, it's Mark's way of showing us the incredible intensity and the, the immediacy of what's happening here. There was no time to sit there and kind of bask in the glory of the heavenly voice or, or rest in the presence of this beautiful heavenly dove. Jesus the servant had a job to do and he immediately went about doing it, right? It's not like he's out there wandering around in the wilderness, right? And he comes upon Satan. No, he was there to redeem us, to redeem the creation back to God Right, take it back from Satan and the effects of sin that he had introduced into God's perfect plan. And the first step in that redemption was to settle his absolute authority over Satan and over sin itself. Now, of course, we know that for his part in the temptation, Satan worked craftily, didn't he? He worked so fruitlessly, though, to try to draw Jesus away from this divinely appointed purpose, but God allowed and actually drove Jesus to the test really to demonstrate that he was qualified for this, this messianic mission, if you will. Understand, the, the whole point of this exercise from the perspective of heaven 
wasn't to see whether or not Jesus would sin, but it was really to prove that he would not sin. So I think we could say that, you know, the Holy Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness, drove him into this temptation and this time of testing. He drove Jesus out there not to do him in, but to show him off, right? It's almost like the father sits in heaven and says, hey, you watch my son and you watch because anything that Satan throws at him, he is surely going to come through beautifully. And I think that there's a sense in which this can be true of all of us. Remember, only what the Father allows can come into our lives. So when temptations or trials or difficulties or these same kinds of wilderness experiences and hard times, when those things do come our way, it is very often because the Father has allowed them simply so that he can bring us through them, right? And it might be just to silence that age-old accusation. Remember the accusation that Satan made against Job, that Job only serves you because you bless him, right? So sometimes the Father will allow these hard things to come into our lives to prove that that's not true for us, just like it wasn't true for Job. It might be to show us off in front of a doubting world who's watching us waiting us in times of trial and expecting us to crumble. God allows these things for so many different reasons. He's always working through them to bring us through them. And these are important times in our Christian experience. Now, this scene, just for you Bible geeks, this is a super, there's some great sort of theological pictures that are kind of completed for us here. Remember, the Apostle Paul describes Jesus to the Corinthians. He calls him the last Adam, right? Jesus is the last Adam, especially in the sense that he came to redeem back what it is that Adam lost. And what a contrast we see when we look at this temptation. What a contrast between the two Adams, right? The first Adam... He underwent a time of testing in this beautiful garden, right? In this perfect environment. And he still failed because he gave in to the desires of his flesh. Now, the last Adam, Jesus, here he's tempted in this dangerous wilderness. And he won the victory because he didn't rely on his flesh, but he relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. Because remember, even in this temptation, this is a a declaration of Jesus' humanity and it was a demonstration of his ability to overcome temptation and to have victory and to have it through the power of the Holy Spirit, just like we can. Remember what the author to the Hebrews writes, that we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who can't sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are, and yet without sin. And so that's from a theological perspective, but even as we put those things aside, which are important things, there's so much, I think, for us to glean from this scene in our own lives, and not the least of which is that we need to expect that the greatest times of temptation and testing for us will very often follow those greatest moments of our spiritual victories. 
it's basically science, right? It's Newton's third law. Is that the, the, like the law of motion? And if you don't remember it, here's a little clarifying kind of a graphic that I put up. We learned it back in school. Remember, it goes like this. Every action has an equal and an opposite reaction, right? All my EEs, is that EE, right? So every action has an equal and opposite reaction in the physical realm, but the very same thing is true, isn't it, in the spiritual realm? And we've all experienced it. So often it's in those times where maybe we had a sense that God really used us, right, in, in ministering to somebody or in witnessing to somebody or being a great encouragement to them, right? Or it's maybe a time when God has had a real breakthrough, right, in our lives spiritually. Maybe we've been at a retreat or at a camp or some other kind of experience of great growth in our faith. And then what happens immediately? Right, there's that word, immediately there's going to be some kind of a spiritual attack that's going to come against us. Think about the scriptures, Exodus 14, right? Just as soon as Israel was delivered from, from Egypt, Pharaoh comes out after them into the wilderness. Right, a little more, more obscure, but in 2 Chronicles 30, just as soon as King Hezekiah reinstituted the Passover nationally, all of a sudden... We've got Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, and all his armies who immediately come and encircle the city of Jerusalem to attack them. Matthew chapter 17, just as soon as Peter, James, and John had witnessed that glorious manifestation of Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration, what happened? Just as soon as they got down the mountain... They were confronted by this severely demon-possessed kid that was challenging them and attacking them. And all of these different things in the scriptures and in our lives, they're all allowed by God, but not in order to sabotage his people, but he allows them in order to strengthen us. And I think that one of the main reasons that the Holy Spirit allows these kind of things to happen is in order for us to really discover that power. In order for us to discover that power that he provides, that we can live a life like Jesus lived, that we can live in victory like Jesus did, that we can be those witnesses for him in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Right, Because it's only when he takes us, right? It's only when the Holy Spirit drives us into these kinds of wilderness situations, right? These situations where previously maybe we've always failed. These same situations where we have always fallen on our face in similar circumstances, but now he takes us into that place where we've always fallen, and, and then he takes us into some kind of great spiritual warfare, and it could look different for all of us, right? It could be some set of circumstances that's threatening us. It could be people who are coming against us. It could be a deep depression that just takes hold of us and it immobilizes us. It could be a season of fear or of doubt or of anxiety or of worry that just really oppresses us. Whatever it is for each of us, and we wonder what in the world is the Holy Spirit doing in my life? Right? I thought that I was past all of that. And yet what happens is that this time, by some miracle, we stand up against it. 
right? This time, maybe for the first time, we draw upon this power that we recognize we have never really known before, and we come out of that temptation or that circumstance so victoriously, more so than we ever have. And so really, this kind of temptation and this attack by the enemy, God allows it for us really just to understand and to discover in, in our own hearts the reality of what has happened in our lives through the baptism of the Spirit, right? God puts us into these kind of deeper waters where we discover that all of a sudden we are accessing a power that we have never known before in our lives. And don't these things always seem to come right as we're advancing in the things of the Lord? Right? Like when we've just started a 30-day through the Bible book, right? And all of a sudden our week goes crazy, right? But they happen at those times when we're advancing in the things of the Lord. Maybe we're stepping out in some special ministry for the Lord. But all of these things are used by the Lord. They are for our, this individual ministry that we have for Jesus. These are these wilderness seasons of preparation for that ministry. Right? Just like God was doing here with Jesus, he's readying us for the ministry that he has in store for us. Never forget that the Bible reminds us that God does some of his most powerful work of preparation in the wilderness right, or in the desert. Moses, he spent 40 years early in his life, the scripture says, on the backside of the desert. Now, the desert's bad enough, but the backside of the desert, right? Then he spent another 40 years as God used the desert to, to purify the, the, the people of Israel, right? Abraham, Isaiah, Elijah, King David, the Apostle Paul, each one of those men had these seasons that they spent in the desert, right? These wilderness seasons when God was doing a deeper work in their souls, in a deeper work of the revelation of himself to them personally, much deeper than he could accomplish under normal circumstances. This is probably not one of those quotes that you have up on the wall at home, but it's a great one from Tozier. He said, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. You know, and we can all look back at some wilderness experience, wilderness season that we've gone through that reminds us of this reality, but we also remember that deep work that was done there in our souls that has really stuck with us, but it came out of that pain and it came out of that struggle. And I know for some of you, for a fact, that you are in a wilderness season even right now in your life. And if you are, Right, no matter how you got there, whether the Holy Spirit drove you there or whether you drove yourself there, right? But no matter how you got there, remember that God has a purpose in it, God has allowed it, and God is using it to do that deep, deep work of preparation in you for the next chapter, right, in your story, the next chapter in your ministry, which is what we're going to move to next in the life of Jesus, not really the next chapter, but we're at least going to move to verse 14, right? That's something. So next, Mark moves on 
He's going to move on from this temptation scene, this preparation out there in the wilderness. And look what we read there at just the beginning of verse 14. It says that after John was put in prison, that Jesus came to Galilee. Now, the Galilee, of course, is that region kind of up in the northern part of Israel. It's a large populated area. It would be north of Samaria, which would, of course, be north of Judea and Jerusalem. The Galilee, of course, was a mixed area, right? It was a part of the land where Jews and Gentiles all were living there mixed together, but usually in their own kind of separate cities. It was actually the area which we're going to see is going to be the center of most of the ministry of Jesus. He's going to spend far more time there in the Galilee and really only comes down to Jerusalem down to the south, I should say, into Jerusalem when the, uh, to attend some of the appointed feast days. Now, here's what we need to know here is that between verse 13 and verse 14, there's a gap of about a whole year in Mark's account of the narrative of Jesus' ministry. Mark just sort of here between those verses, he just jumps ahead in time. And I heard somebody once put it in a way that really made sense to me, and he likened Mark's gospel to going through a photo album, where Mark just kind of picked out different points, focused in on them. So it's kind of like saying, well, here's this picture, and this is what happened there. And then here's this other picture, and a little bit more about this picture, and here's a little bit more about this particular picture. But he's just kind of jumping from one event to another. Mark's intention is not at all to try to cover all of what Jesus did, and that's kind of the way his gospel in particular works. So he's jumping to the next thing that the Holy Spirit wants him to highlight. He jumps ahead about a year. Now, the year that he skipped is recorded for us in more detail in John's account. It's everything from about chapter 1, verse 35, all the way through about chapter 4, kind of verse 43. But it includes the initial contact that Jesus had with all of his disciples as they started to be with him. We read about Andrew and Simon Peter and Philip and Nathaniel. And it includes specifically in John's account these beautiful times of this kind of quiet, personal ministry. And these are going to ring a bell for you. Remember the wedding there, the first miracle Jesus did at that wedding in Cana. right? John chapter 2, turning water into wine, where no one knew what had been done except the servants who had their eyes on Jesus. There was Jesus' personal time with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. There was his encounter there with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. And we think about these things. They weren't these big, showy things. They were these intimate kind of personal encounters of this beautiful one-on-one kind of ministry, all of it with these new disciples kind of watching, no doubt, at a bit of a distance, wondering what in the world is this guy all about? And so this time of Jesus' ministry was a very important aspect of his ministry in the very same way that it's an important aspect in our ministries as well. It's the, that importance of that, that patient, kind of intimate, personal ministry. I want to encourage you, never discount the impact 
of individual personal ministry that God ordains for your life. You know, a lot of people sort of mistakenly just see ministry as what it is that we do here on a Sunday morning. That's part of ministry, but ministry is so much more than just that because ministry at its core is individual and it's personal. Ministry is that person who's right there in front of you and at that moment is the only person in the world that matters. Ministry is that confused religious Nicodemus who has come to you. Ministry is that sinful, ashamed Samaritan who's standing right there in front of you. And ministry is the fact that these people just need a touch from Jesus. They need a word from Jesus. And Jesus has put you there in front of them in order to be able to touch them or to speak to them and to do it right straight through you. So always remember, Jesus spent an entire year, nearly a third of his whole public ministry, he spent just ministering quietly and intimately to the individual because he values individuals, right? He prioritizes them. He spent time with them just like we need to do as well. So Jesus was doing all of that before Mark now moves to this next kind of momentous moment, right, to the next photo in his album, and it's the arrest and the imprisonment of John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist continued his very public ministry, even as Jesus was just starting out in those early days of his private personal ministry. John continued until he was arrested. Mark's actually gonna tell us a little bit more about that in chapter six, but we remember in John chapter 3, uh, John the Baptist had said something very interesting. He had said that he must increase, right? Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. And so this was God's timing for precisely that transition. And Jesus now makes his way back to the north from all of that ministry he was doing down in Jerusalem and Judea. He comes up through Samaria, right? Probably when he had the encounter with the woman at the well. So again, we pick up in verse 14 that it was after John was put in prison that Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So put a star by those verses. This is Jesus' really first public proclamation of the gospel message. And notice that he did it of all places, not in Jerusalem, which was the religious capital of the nation, but he did it up in the Galilee, right? This rural kind of area up in the north. Now, why the Galilee? Well, because it was predicted by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah that when Messiah came, that he would come to the Galilee. Right? Isaiah chapter 9, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. So understand, this was a region up there in the Galilee of this region of these struggling Jews who had been mixed with and very often overrun by their Gentile neighbors. 
right? Up there in the north, they were always the first ones to fall historically when both the Assyrians and then the Babylonians had come down ruthlessly from the north to take Israel captive. Consequently, that whole region started to be called the Galilee of the Gentiles because the Gentiles had settled there ultimately and completely overshadowed the Israelites completely, right? So these were these Jews who had suffered so many attacks from all of these foreign enemies, and they were going to be the first ones to experience deliverance as the Messiah, right? As Jesus himself first publicly enters into this region to bring them this good news. Because notice again what it says in verse 15, the time is fulfilled. Right, Jesus says all of those prophecies in the Old Testament describing the coming of Messiah, they have all been now fulfilled and I am here. Right, Messiah is here. I'm bringing with me the kingdom of God. It's at hand. Right? He says it's as close as your hand. In other words, there is a new kingdom that is about to be introduced into human history. Now, of course, his original audience, they had a completely different idea about what this kingdom was that they were expecting, right? So part of this announcement that Jesus is making here, he's showing them that this program is very different than you think. He says the kingdom of God is here right now. It's available to you right now. You can enter into it right now. It's not going to be what you think and it is certainly not going to come about the way that you thought that it would. Because of that time, of course, they thought that the kingdom was going to be manifest by the king coming and conquering the Romans, right? Destroying them, establishing the throne of David, and then exalting the people of God to a place of prominence. That's what they thought was coming. But here comes Jesus right, the carpenter from nowhere Nazareth, right, and he says, no, the kingdom of God is near, it's here now, and it's very different than you ever dreamed it would be. Because what he's really saying is that if you're looking for an option to the kingdom of man, if you're looking for an option from the kingdom of this world and from the kingdom of bondage to sin and to slavery and to oppression and all of these other things, if you're at a point now in your life where you are asking, is there an alternative out there? Is there an end of this life and this nature that I was born into? And so Jesus comes on the scene now and he declares, yes, there absolutely is another kingdom. And that kingdom is here now in this world, and it's the kingdom of God, and you can be part of it. That was his message then, and that is still our message today, right? That's the kingdom message of our ministry. Now, here's an important thing to understand as it relates to the kingdom. And I, I think somebody put it so well. They said that the kingdom is already, but not yet. So the kingdom of God is here now, actually. If you're a believer in Jesus today, right, it means that you are under his lordship, that he's your king, that you are part of his kingdom, 
right? The kingdom of God is very near, right? You are living there in that realm if you're a believer. So it is already here, it's now, and yet we know it's also not yet because we know that although that's the case, we know ultimately the final fulfillment of the kingdom won't come until the millennial reign of Jesus as he rules and reigns here on the earth for a thousand years, right? That's when the, the righteousness and the peace and the, the joy and the love, that's when it's going to be universal. But that's not quite here yet, ultimately, right? It's not quite here yet for the world collectively, and yet anybody can experience that personally, even here and now, as we allow the lordship of Jesus to be what rules and reigns over all the different spheres of our life. Right? So the kingdom of heaven can be here now in our homes. It can be here now in our marriages and our families and our relationships. We can allow it in our neighborhoods. We can bring it with us into our work life. Anywhere where we allow the Lord Jesus really to be king and where we allow his principles and his priorities to really have their proper place, the kingdom is there. So although it's not fully here now, it is right now. And so Jesus is saying to people, you can be part of this even now, and the only thing you have to do in order to be part of it is what? Repent and believe in the gospel. That's your fast pass into the kingdom, right? There's no waiting. So understand, the very first word out of Jesus' mouth, so to speak, in terms of this public proclamation of the gospel is what word? Starts with an R, it's the R word, right? Repent. Repent, and I can see some of you guys squirming already. But we said last week, repent simply means what? To have a change of mind that then produces some kind of a change of direction in our life. And we need to be especially careful, I think, in this area as servants of Christ, right, as Christians here, especially in the United States, especially at this time, especially in this culture, we need to be especially careful to continue to put a call to repent as a part of the presentation of the gospel. And I'm exhorting myself most of all in this, right? We need to make sure it's there. Now, we don't have to do it in the angry guy on the corner with the bullhorn kind of a way. But what we need to do is we need to make clear to those who we're ministering to that where it is that the world wants to take them and where it is that God wants to take them, they are two entirely different destinations, Right, and when before I become a Christian, when I'm walking in that, wait, which side was the world? I don't remember. When I'm walking in that direction of the world, I'm headed in one direction, but in order now to follow Jesus and become part of his kingdom, what do I have to do? I have to stop walking in that direction and I have to start walking in a completely different direction altogether. You cannot be saved, right? You cannot walk with God apart from repentance combined with your faith. That's why he says repent and believe in the gospel. 
So we're not saved just on the basis of our repentance, but we're saved on the basis of our belief, right? Our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And then that's what compels us to change directions and start heading toward him instead of running away from him. Does that make sense? So we're saved by faith, but repentance is part of that. It's, they go hand in hand. It's not either or, right? It's both and. It means I am done going in my own direction. I'm done being in control of my own life. I'm through with it. And I'm ready now, based on what I believe, I'm ready now to turn to you, God, 100%, and now to head in your direction. You have to turn from one direction and head toward Jesus Christ by faith. And yet what happens for us here in our affluent culture is we say, wow, you know, if we say here's the gospel and you need to repent in order to come to Christ, we're going to scare people off, right? Because we are so very, very concerned that we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to make Christianity seem like it's out of reach or that there are any demands at all on your life. And so what Christianity becomes is it says, look, you know, if you just kind of continue to live the life that you're already living and you just kind of add Jesus into the mix, just kind of shore up your eternity. But, you know, and then, you know, while you're on your way to eternity, you could stop in at a worship service once in a while, you know, and, and come and have, you know, buffet with us, right? Well, that might be belief, but that's not repent and believe. We're so freaked out by the word repentance, but it's actually a beautiful word because once a person is sick and tired of their life and sick and tired of the world, sick and tired of the decisions that they've made, sick and tired of the sin that they're engaged in, sick and tired of where their life has ended up under their own headship and under their own direction, that word repentance is actually the most beautiful word that you can hear when you understand what it means. Because what it means is what we've all heard before. It means that God allows U-turns. And it's that knowledge that there actually is another kingdom out there. There actually is another option to this, this life that I'm living in the way I've been living it. And not only that, but that I have this incredible invitation from God himself. I have the privilege by the power of God himself to turn away from that direction I've been going and now to go in God's direction. And that message will never be an offensive message to someone who's had their fill of the, the sin of the world or to the person who's being drawn to Christ by the Holy Spirit. Because let me just remind you what Paul told us as we just studied through the book of Colossians. Remember Paul explained to us what really happens in the spiritual realm. What really happens in the spiritual reality when we repent and when we believe. Do you remember these verses? That we are literally, Paul says that God literally, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. So we have been moved from one kingdom into an entirely different new 
kingdom. And that is a massive transformation. And that's what we need to be emphasizing. Because there's so much confusion today about what it even is to be a Christian, right? Sometimes people just look at being a Christian and they just liken it to being religious. Or they just think that it's part of being a good person or being a moral social conservative or those kinds of things. But that's not it. That's not it in the least. Becoming a Christian is way more radical than that. Meeting Jesus is something that is so radical. Coming to Jesus is something that is so radical, you are literally extracted from the kingdom of darkness and you're put into the entirely new kingdom of the son of his love. And listen, if you're in that kingdom, you're going to know it. Amen? You're going to know it because you're going to have a very different experience than you had before. And even though that kingdom of darkness, of course, it's still there all around us. We live in this material world, and yet we become citizens of this kingdom of heaven, which is an immaterial world, but it's so very real. Right? The reality of the unseen world is way more real than the reality of the world that we can see. And we have a very different experience now in our lives. We just perceive things differently. We see differently. We hear differently. We, we hear what other people don't hear because we hear the actual voice of God speaking to us. We, we see things that other people don't see because we now see them from the perspective of heaven. We have all these amazing kinds of things. And even though you're still in the physical world and you're connected to it, obviously, in so many ways, the point is it is no longer going to be the predominant thing in your life. That physical, material world and all of the stuff that's going on in it, it's not going to be the thing that primarily concerns you anymore. It's not going to be the thing that you're taken up with because you say, no, I'm a part of this other kingdom over here. And because you're part of that kingdom, you're going to start to live like the people of that kingdom and start to live under the authority of the king of that kingdom. That's what's all wrapped up when Jesus says that the kingdom of God is near and it's here and it's available. He says to these people, this is your opportunity. Don't miss it. Right? And then as quickly as we got there, Mark jumps to the next picture in his album right, of Jesus' ministry. It says in verse 16... That as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, right? So he's just come up into the region. He's made this proclamation in whatever forum he's made it. And now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. So it was now time for the Lord Jesus to assemble his team, right now to get this message of the gospel and of the kingdom out to others. And the very first ones to be called to be part of this team, right, were these brothers, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, who were fishing there on the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is what we would probably more likely call the Lake of Galilee. Right, the Sea of Galilee is actually a freshwater lake. 
It had a very thriving fishing kind of an industry there, but it's only about seven miles wide, about 13 miles long, which is just a little more than half the size of Lake Tahoe. So it's not really that big. And again, remember, this wasn't the first time these men had met Jesus. Remember, a year before this point, and John tells us that at that point, they had recognized Jesus for who he was. In John chapter 1, Andrew says this to Peter. He says, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And then after that, they had attended that wedding in Cana. They had probably spent time with him down there in Judea and Jerusalem. But for some reason that we're not told, they had gone back up to the Galilee, most likely just to re-engage in their livelihood of being full-time fishermen. And they had been going about their business doing that, no doubt. Can you imagine how all the things that they had seen and that they had heard for that last year, the way that those things just rattled around in their hearts and in their minds. And so here when Jesus makes this, this call to follow him, understand this isn't so much about salvation because they've already trusted in him as Messiah. They've watched him minister as Messiah. They had sort of received him as Messiah. So this isn't so much about salvation, but this is much more about service. It's much more about Christian service. Now, I will tell you, there are some who would look at this passage and they would interpret it, they would make the case that this is a very specific call upon these men into full-time ministry or into pastoral ministry. And unfortunately, I don't agree at all. Now, I certainly believe it would include that. And yet at its heart, it is a simple call to Christian service, which is a normal part of a Christian life. Right? Wherever it is that the Lord calls us to serve, whether he calls us to serve vocationally or whether he calls us to serve you know, circumstantially or, or, or would it, you know, that everybody's always serving the Lord and we need to view our lives like that. Whether God has us working at Google or teaching at Stanford or whether he has us working, you know, running our own business, whatever it is that we're doing, we're doing it as unto the Lord. Remember, in no uncertain terms, Paul told us that the end goal, right, of our Christian life Right? Remember to the Corinthians when he writes to them, he talks about beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. He says we are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So as we grow in our faith, we grow by being transformed more and more each day. We're becoming more like Jesus and nobody can be like Jesus or can be being conformed into his image without also being a servant like he is a servant. I will just say that a non-service kind of a Christianity just simply does not exist in the Bible. And of course, Mark's gospel famously is the one where he records Jesus saying that he came not to be served, but what? To serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So I believe that this whole section is something that really speaks to each and every one of us on some level, right? This is the calling 
of all of us into this ministry. Again, that ministry of reconciliation, that great co-mission that we're on with Jesus. Because when Jesus called these first men to be fishers of men, he was just calling them to simply do what he did. Jesus was the greatest fisher of men that ever lived, but he knew he needed to reproduce himself in others so that they could do the work that he did, starting with these two in these two verses, and then we're going to see two more in the next two verses, and then eight more, if my math is right, to make 12. And then from there, hundreds and thousands and then thousands upon thousands all the way down through the centuries, because this is how that glorious new kingdom is going to be communicated to the world. Right? It's as these men and, and as we have received something that's so very wonderful in following Jesus and as our hearts are changed and as they're shaped now by that new reality that we are in him, we can't help but to want now to give that to others and to catch them up in the net of the kingdom and get them out of the net that they're caught in in the world. And so first we see Jesus here on the, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He calls Andrew. He calls Simon Peter, his brother. It says in verse 19, and when he had gone a little further from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. So we have this same response, this heartfelt obedience from James and John, another set of these fishermen brothers. Now, there's a couple lessons I want us to have in our hearts related to all of this. And the first one, it's so obvious, but I'm going to point it out anyway because that's what I do. But that the, the greatest thing that a person can do, right, the greatest thing that we as Christians can do for the sake of our fruitfulness in our ministry or our service to the Lord is just to do exactly what Jesus called these guys first and foremost to do, and that is simply what? To follow him. He says, follow me. Because with this very simple invitation, Jesus shows us what Christianity is really all about. It's just about following him. At its root, Christianity is not about theological systems. It's not about rules. It's not even about helping people. It's all about following Jesus. And I don't think there's any sense of longevity in our Christian lives, apart from our salvation, which is secure, but there, there's no longevity or, or this joyful kind of a fruitful Christian life. Certainly there's no longevity in Christian service unless we're doing what God has called us to do and we're doing it out of our love for Jesus and because of this relationship that we have with him. Because nothing else will ever provide the kind of motivation and the strength that's required. The, the greatest equipping that a human being can ever have for Christian service and Christian ministry is simply to be walking with Jesus, right? To have that personal relationship with him. And then everything we do is an overflow of that relationship. And I know I said it went without saying, but I said it anyway because I truly believe that we couldn't say that enough. The second thing, of course, that we notice is their immediate obedience to his call. 
It wasn't like this was a hard thing for them to figure out, right? This was the Messiah. He, immediately he called them. It says immediately they, they left their nets. Now, this could have been very confusing if they had sat down and kind of tried to wade things out on an economic level, right? Because he's calling them to leave their livelihood or at the very least to leave the security of that and the stability that came with that. And he wants them now to follow him and be this fisher of men. Now, I am not suggesting that everyone here should quit their jobs to serve Jesus, but I am suggesting that you serve Jesus right where you are, and that when Jesus is clearly calling you to step out into an unknown area of uncertainty, that yes, we should trust him, yes, we should obey him, whatever that looks like in your situation. And that might mean staying at a job that you don't want to stay at. It might mean taking a different job. It might be seeking out a lesser job which will free you up to serve him more. It might mean taking on some more responsibilities or a new role within a ministry that you're already a part of, even if you're sure that you don't feel like you're equipped for that ministry. Because again, it's also important to notice, didn't Jesus make it very, very clear here that it was their responsibility to follow after him, but it was his responsibility then to make them successful in his call upon their lives. Look at verse 17. He says, I will make you become fishers of men. And he did, didn't he? He made them successful. So much so that 2,000 years of human history since this time, and the names of these men are household names because of their faith and because of their obedience. And the more we learn about these men, the more we learn what, we, what we've heard before, what we need to be reminded of, that God isn't looking for ability. He's only looking for availability. And when God calls us to do something for him, when he calls you to do whatever it is that he calls you to do, you should be the most baffled person in the room at that point because you know yourself better than anyone else and you know that you're not qualified to do what he just called you to do. And if you think you're qualified, that probably means you're disqualified, right? But Jesus says that he'll qualify you. As we simply take that step of faith he's calling us to take, that the, he will then make us into what it is he wants to make us into. Jesus is going to take care of that part no matter how much help some of us might need. Think about it. Did you know that of the 12 men that Jesus himself called, at least seven of those guys were fishermen? Which, of course, at that time means they've got no formal education They've got no seminary training. They're not even from religious Jerusalem. These guys live out in the sticks in this Gentile-infested Galilee. There is nobody who would have ever chosen the 12 men that Jesus chose. And the same thing probably goes for you and me. I know it goes for me. And yet God was going to do great things through these guys because he called these guys. And the longer I serve the Lord and the longer I walk with the Lord, to me, 
I realized that calling is everything. Whatever it is that he is calling each one of us to do uniquely, whatever that special ministry is that he has for you, whether it's ministering to kids or whether it's ministering to homeless or whether it's ministry through prayer or whether it's individual person, whatever it is, Whatever he calls you to, he will make you successful in it. So much so that when he does, it will be apparent to anyone who knows you that God's the one who deserves the glory. Amen? To know that he's the one that's doing it. He's the source of anything good that could possibly come out of our lives. And it's completely a work of his life flowing through our lives. Because what he does is he takes our very unique lives... And he uses them in specific ways in all of these different aspects of this kingdom ministry. This is super cool. Did you notice, and I just think it's, it's worth pointing out, how did it get to be this time? I'm, I don't care, anyway. Notice that Mark says in verse 16 that Peter and Andrew were casting their nets into the sea when Jesus called them, while down in verse 19, on the other hand, he says that James and John were in the boat mending their nets. And it's not by accident, it's interesting, but I think it's also instructive because what we see in the gospel accounts and what we see later, both in the book of Acts and in the letters that these guys write, is that the ministry of Peter and Andrew would primarily be evangelism. Right, Andrew is always bringing people to Jesus, right? Of course, Peter we see preaching these powerful sermons, especially in the early pages of the book of Acts. That first one there on the day of Pentecost caught 3,000 people up in the net of the gospel. And yet then when you look at the ministry of John and James, by contrast, they had ministries more so of mending people. Mending them through the emphasis that they both had on, on the heartfelt, the real practical nature of the teachings and the love of Jesus. And the word that Mark uses there that's translated mending literally means to put in order or to make ready. And it's a form of the very same word that Paul uses when he writes to the Ephesians where he talks about the work of a pastor and a teacher given to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, right? For the mending of the saints or to prepare the saints just like they were preparing their nets. So their work in the ministry was to prepare the saints for their work in their different callings in the ministry. So these men had very different callings, had very different giftings, and yet all working together in this same kingdom ministry. And, and the, all of that is to simply say that whatever your temperament is personally, or whatever your, whatever your skills are you know, vocationally, just watch the Lord as he will sanctify those things and he'll use them in this specific thing that he's given you to do. And I think for any of you who've been serving the Lord, there comes that point where we're finally settled into that thing that really is God's call in our lives. This is our niche, right? It may have taken us a hundred different things that we tried before we got there, but now we're finally settled into that thing that God has called us to do and what he's gifted us to do. It may look very different than what he's called and he's gifted that other person to do, but once we get to that point and then we look back, 
And we just see how long he had been preparing us for this very place and this need within the world or within the body of Christ, right? All of us working together, some of us are casting nets, some of us are mending nets. But all of it in preparation for this, the greatest responsibility that any of us would ever have in life, the greatest privilege that we could possibly dream of in life, and that's communicating this gospel in our own unique way, in our own unique sphere of ministry and influence that God has provided for us. Right? There's so much that can be said about these fishermen that Jesus called and so many interesting similarities between our work as Christian servants and, and fishing. It, it certainly it could and it probably should be a whole Sunday morning. But here's this list that I'm going to kind of close with. This is the first of three closes. But the, this list I love. These are some observations made by one author about the similarities between ministry and fishing. And he wrote very simply that fishing is an art and so is soul winning. It requires patience. Often there are lonely hours of waiting. It requires skill in the use of bait, lures, or nets. It requires discernment and common sense in going where the fish are running. It requires persistence. A good fisherman is not easily discouraged. It requires quietness. The best policy is to avoid disturbances and to keep self in the background. Isn't that a great list? Now, I know we could all each come up with even more, right? Like, you know, how important it is to be sold out for Jesus. Sorry, sold, see what I did there with soul? Like, right, or how important it is to be efficient in our ministries, right, okay. Or how serving in ministry can really increase your spiritual net worth. Or we can forget all that and just go back to the list that he made, right? Which is maybe a better one. Right? But all about us becoming these fishers of men, right? It's probably simpler to sum up and just say, look, we become fishers of men by following Jesus. And the more like him we are, the more successful we're going to be in leading others to him always remembering that our responsibility is just to follow him and that he will take care of the rest. I do want to add just this one thing. One thing that's always true of fishermen, right, especially commercial fishermen, like these kind of Sea of Galilee or like those deadliest catch. Have you ever watched that show? Crazy. Those kinds of fishermen. One thing that's always true of those fishermen is they are all always hard workers. And I think that's important for us to remember as we finish up to consider, you know, as we consider our preparation for the ministry and our calling into the ministry is that we are engaged in this ministry, this life and death thing that it is in the world, right? This privilege that we have of being able to just represent God and to share the good news of the gospel. This is this thing that will change the eternal destiny of a person. It's the only thing that can change the eternal destiny. And it's also the only thing that can change their present reality. Right? It, it, it can usher them into this kingdom of God that's at hand, that's here already and yet not here completely. That righteousness and that joy and that peace that we can enjoy now as we're waiting for that to happen. 
right? Living under this reality, living under this king, that's what we've been called into, to be able to share that with other people. And let's not miss out on one single thing that God has for us. Let's not miss out on just the wonder and the glory and the beauty and just the amazingness of the fact that we not only can live in this kingdom, but we can invite others and we can show them the way that they can live in it as well. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you for this morning, Lord. And I thank you for the patience of these people, Lord. I pray that by the Spirit that you would help us, Lord, that you would be able to bring these things to remembrance, Lord, and that we would be able to chew on these things uh, as we go this week. Lord, we thank you for your word and for the great encouragement that it gives to us, Lord. And we pray that you would um, bless us as we go, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand up and let's uh, worship the Lord.
love you, Lord. And I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Amen, you guys. Thanks for your patience. Uh, if you're visiting today, I'd love to say that it never goes that long, but that would be a lie, and my wife tells me that lying is not becoming of a pastor, so I won't do it. But I will tell you, uh, it's great to have you here, and let's head out and have some fellowship. So like 12-ish, we're going to have our 30 days discussion group. If you want to come to that down here, Professor Skelly's leading it this morning, so it should be especially good, I think. Amen? God bless you guys. so long and even faints for the courts of the Lord Lord my heart and my flesh cry out for you oh God you're my son
pants my soul.